Well, today we are continuing in our journey through the book, the letter of 1 John. As a reminder, it's the letter of 1 John, it's not the Gospel of John, though we often refer back to the Gospel of John because it's the same author. And today we're going to be looking forward also into the book of Revelation. So if you uh, like to follow along your Bibles, you want to know where we're at, uh, we're going to be in 1 John, then we're going to spend a lot of time in Revelation verses, uh, chapters 2 and 3. So how many of you have ever won some kind of championship of any kind? How many of you have played on like a team or on an individual sport where you won a major championship? Y'all can do it. Good for you, man. Not many of us have, you know. I, uh, I played uh, American football growing up in the U.S., and we had very, very good teams. In fact, uh, two of the guys I played with uh, who were uh, our quarterbacks my junior year in high school and my senior year, which would be like uh, 11 and 12 here, uh, both of them actually went pro, and they played in the NFL for a while. They didn't do that great in the pros, but just to get there, is pretty impressive. We had very good teams, but we never won a state championship. We never really won anything. In fact, I've never, I've never been on a team or individual. I, I used to wrestle also in high school, and uh, I experienced, I know what it means to be a gracious loser, uh, but when it comes to winning, I never really uh, experienced that a whole lot. In fact, of the teams that I root for, like how many of you are like Byron Munich fans? Do you want to admit that here? Okay. If you are, you've experienced a lot. You've, as a fan, you've experienced a lot of success. If you're a Dusseldorf Fortuna fan, eh, not so much. Uh, in fact, I looked it up. The last time Fortuna won a major championship was in 1935. So it's, it's been a while. In 72, they got close to another championship. But uh, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, my favorite sport, as you probably picked up, because I played it and all that, and I understand it, and I just love it is American football. And uh, for those of you who don't know, these two guys are legends in American football. Uh, the guy uh, to the, the right without the helmet with his handsome chin is uh, Tom Brady. And uh, the guy in the helmet there, and his name is Dan Marino. And both these guys are, are legends in the NFL. And uh, if you were to ask people who, who know much about the NFL and American football, they both played quarterback which is the most important position. I know most of you don't really know this, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But just to say that most people would say that Dan Marino, the guy in the white over there, was probably one of the best pure quarterbacks to ever play the game. He was, one, he was extremely accurate with throwing the ball, had tremendous arm strength, you know, just accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment. Uh, the list of records that he still holds to this day, and he finished, he stopped playing about 15 years ago, are impressive. But he only got to the championship game once in his career. And he had a long career. And the one time he got to the championship game was the second year of his career. And he, and he lost. And he never made it back to the championship game. And he was a first-round draft pick when he came out of the university. Because in the United States, universities play each other. It's kind of this, it's almost what our... Uh, second tier league is, is really our universities. He was one of the top picks. Tom Brady, when he came out of university, he was picked almost at the bottom of all the picks. He was like 197th person picked, which is very low. At this point, teams don't really expect anything from these guys. 
But when he had a chance to get in there and play after the starting quarterback was injured, he went on to a career where he won the championship seven times. He appeared in the championship game ten times. The next closest person who has won as many championships as that as quarterback is a guy named Joe Montana and, and Jerry, Terry Bradshaw. They have won four times. And that used to be the gold standard, four times. This guy won seven times. And because we live in a society where winning is very important, Dan Marino has gone down in history as the best player in the NFL who has never won a championship. And that's always attached to the end of his title. Best player in the NFL to never win a championship. Whereas Tom Brady's title is just simply best player in all-time history. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he won so much. He won, he won, he's won more times as an individual than any single, single team in the entire league. He's won seven times. Six of the time, the next team that's won as many Super Bowl championships are the Patriots, who won six times, and they won all those with him as quarterback. Then he went to another team and won it with them too. The greatest of all time. But it's measured in his championships. And as much as we say that winning isn't everything, I can tell you, having been in sports on the other side of the equation, far more often than on the winning side, uh, winning's a lot better than losing. And we had a, there's a famous coach in the NFL that said, uh, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. <laughs> so, if you're a Christian, do you often think of your faith in terms of winning and losing? Do you often think of your faith in terms of being victorious? You might be surprised how often the Bible speaks in terms of winning and losing. But very often, there's a twist in the Bible. For example, the story of David and Goliath is a, a classic example. You know, David goes out and he fights Goliath. But what's the twist in the story? What's the unexpected part of the story? Well, it's that David was considered the weaker of the two. You know, Goliath was a giant. David was a little shepherd. Goliath had, a, had armor, shield, you know, a spear that they say was huge. Uh, and, uh, and David had a sling. And no armor. He tried to wear the armor of the king, and he, didn't find, he found it unsuitable for what he wanted to do. So he went out there without armor, and yet he won. And this is commonly found in the Bible. You know, the whole Exodus story is a story of a bunch of slaves who managed to overcome, at that time, the great superpower of their, of their time and of their region being Egypt. And they escape into the desert. The ultimate... Uh, good versus evil competition is the cross of Christ, where the cross looked like the defeat of Christ. And yet through his resurrection, we see that the cross was really a place where the power of sin and death was broken. And through the resurrection of Christ, he was vindicated as the victor, the king over all. So in the letter of 1 John, where we're picking up today, there's a term that is used over and over again, and it's the word overcome. Those who overcome. And so we're going to read the passage today we're looking at in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to include the verses from last week because, you know, his thought is really just flowing together. And then we're going to, uh, to look at what it means to be a people that can overcome. 
And what is it really talking about when it says that we are those who overcome the world? So 1 John chapter 5, looking at verse 1, he says this, 1 through 6. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. So if you've been here with us for a while, you know, we've talked about the verses leading up into uh, this, the verses about keeping the commandments and all that. And we looked at that last week. And today we're looking at this idea, what does it mean to overcome? And this word overcome is interesting because it's used more often in this letter of 1 John than any other book in the Bible. And 1 John is relatively short. It's only five chapters long. And yet this particular word is used more often than any other book in the Bible except for one, and that's the book of Revelation. And not coincidentally, a lot of people believe the Apostle John is also the author of the book of Revelation. There's some dispute about that among scholars, but I think he's probably the author also of Revelation because you see a lot of the same patterns and words. And this is one of the words you see pop up a lot in both this letter and in the book of Revelation, this word overcome. And it's an interesting word because it indicates that there is a continuous overcoming taking place within the context of a continuous struggle. And that's important to understand about faith. It's a continuous overcoming. It's not a time where you reach the sort of, you know, uh, summit of overcoming in the world where you just kind of kick back, put up your feet and say, good, we're done. Don't have to worry about having to overcome anything more. No, the idea is there's a continuous overcoming that has to take place within a continuous conflict, a continuous struggle. And this is a struggle that, according to the scripture, is not going to end until either Christ returns or we go and be in his presence through physical death. And so then for the Christian, we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? How do we become these people who continuously overcome? He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And it's not saying, and this is, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. It's not saying that we have to even overcome our faith. It's saying the thing that overcomes the world is our faith. But what does that mean? I think a lot of us kind of have in our heads, well, I guess it means, you know, to overcome is pretty obvious. But then if you were to get to the specifics, if I were to ask you specifically, what is it the Christian needs to overcome in order to be victorious in the world? What would you say? Yeah, it's kind of one of those vague ideas that seems to be very specific, but it's kind of vague. But actually the Bible, again, the Bible interprets the Bible. There are specific answers to these questions. And they're, very found, they're found in the book of Revelation. So these are the questions we're going to be looking at today. How do we do this? How do we continually overcome? And the answer to that is, again, it's kind of a vague answer, so we need to get to specifics. We know from, the book of, from this letter, 1 John, that we have to have a faith in Christ, which leads to our unity with his Holy Spirit and a unity with one another. Okay, that sounds good, but what are the specifics? What are we looking for? What are we expected to overcome? And what are the rewards for those who overcome? 
And again, the book of Revelation talks a lot about this. So we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation now, chapters 2 and 3. And in these chapters, the message, uh, a message is being given to these seven churches. And you probably, those of you who've read the Bible, you're familiar with the seven churches, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Laodicea. There's these seven churches that there's messages given to. And they're all in terms of overcoming. So we're going to look at the verses when they talk about what is it that they, what is it that overcoming bring, gives them. And then we're going to kind of back up and look at the verse that leads into them. And you'll see, I'll just go into it, you'll see the pattern. So the first verse we look at, the first time we really see this word being used in, a, in the same way that John uses it in the, in the letter of 1 John is Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's interesting the word paradise. The word paradise actually means a walled garden. It means it's a place of, of freedom, it's a place of beauty, and it's protected. It's walled in. It's actually a Persian word uh, that's been, you know, that got adopted into several languages, paradise. And he talks about that. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To overcome in this context means to remain true to the teachings of Christ. For those who remain true to the teachings of Christ, he will give them the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the verses that lead into it are this. He says, you have this in your favor. Now he's speaking to a whole church in this, but just kind of think of it as, as individuals as well. He says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The practice of the Nicolaitans uh, were, they were a, the, the guy is actually mentioned in the book of Acts. He was a, he was a leader in the early church, this guy named Nicholas. And they began to teach this idea that, well, God's grace flows when we seek forgiveness. And so in order for God's grace to flow in abundance, we should sin in abundance. And the more you sin, the more God's grace flows to allow forgiveness. And so sin is a good thing. And this group would literally, they'd get together, they would have orgies together. They would, you know, get drunk, and there's the, and the sexual impurity going on. And the idea behind it was, well, let's sin in abundance so that God's grace will flow in abundance when we ask for forgiveness. This is a teaching that leads to death. It's eating of the forbidden fruit, in a sense. And this is why he talks about it in the terms of those who overcome, I'll give them the right to eat from the tree of life. Because if you remember from the book of Genesis... It was this eating of the forbidden fruit that leads to the fall. And this Nicolaitans, they're like, do everything you want. And then ask for forgiveness. And that is actually a good thing, so they taught. And so you overcome by remaining true to the teachings of Christ and not allowing them to be twisted in order to fit some kind of perversion, which a lot of people might think sounds great, might enjoy it. And this is not something that disappeared, by the way. Have you ever heard of Rasputin, this crazy Russian monk that a lot of people say was responsible for the, the overthrow of Tsar Nicholas and the death of his family and all that? The Tsar's family was worried that their son was going to die. He had hemophilia, a bleeding disease. 
and they believed that Rasputin somehow had miraculous powers to control this. He was in this philosophy. He was well known for being involved in orgies and whatnot as a monk. And then he would go and then, you know, claim that the power of God was flowing through him because he sinned in abundance. So grace flows into his life in abundance. It's a false teaching that leads literally to death. And for the czar, it was the death of his whole family and the collapse of the royal family in Russia. Then it goes on. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is a promise of overcoming, which says that if we endure the pain and persecution and death of unjust persecution, then we do not have to fear judgment before God. And it's this idea that we overcome by remaining faithful in the face of injustice. Now, this doesn't mean we can go out and we break the law and we say, oh, the world is, you know, I'm always innocent no matter what. No, it's in the face of injustice. The Apostle Paul, for example, in chapter 13 of Romans, talks a lot about that the secular government has been given certain rights by God and that they are there for the overall good of the people. And we are not to be lawbreakers as long as it doesn't cause us to compromise our faith. But there is injustice sometimes that people face. And the Christianity has faced a lot of injustice, particularly in the early church, and still faces injustice in different parts of the world today, where Christians are persecuted for no other reason other than they're Christians. And so the verses leading into this said this, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, And I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is kind of a sober overcoming because it's basically saying that even when you face injustice, and you might face unjust injustice to the point of death. But Jesus later said in one of the Gospels, he says, don't be afraid of those who can put an end to this life. Be concerned about the one who can put an end to your life eternally. And so those who overcome will not be hurt at all by the second death. Another place of overcoming, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, as we go through these verses, you're going to see that he, he expects that the people who are reading this know the Old Testament. And he throws out names that you sort of have to understand the context of who these people are to understand what he's saying. We'll fill in some of those blanks for folks today. To him who overcomes, I'll give some of the hidden manna. Now manna, if you remember, manna was how God fed the people when they were in the desert. He gave them bread. It was called manna, manna from heaven. And there's also this idea, you see this idea that there's a new identity that is given, a white stone with a name written on it, known only to Christ. It's our new identity in Christ. And what this is talking about is the way we overcome in this context is we refuse to eat. We refuse to nourish our souls with the lies of the world. Now, this is not to say that everything that comes outside the church or from some religious stream is just ipso facto wrong and false. It's not saying that. But it is saying that there are things the world tries to feed your soul, which are lies. 
And the preceding verses are these. It says, I have a few things against you. He's talking to this particular church. He says, you have people who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. So who was Balaam and who is Balak? Well, if you go back again to the, to the Bible and the... Uh, Oh, when is this? In, is this in Numbers or in Exodus? Oh, I should have known that. Ah, sorry. Anyways, there's a, there's, a, there's a king named Balak, and he sees the Israelites, and he's intimidated by them. He's intimidated by the fact that these, this horde came out of Egypt, and they're just kind of you know, laying waste to everything, taking over. They're unstoppable. So he hires this false prophet named Balaam to curse them. And Balaam tries to go and curse them, and he's unable to do it. He's like stopped by God. And the only thing that comes out of his mouth is blessings. So then Balaam says, I can't curse these folks. What you need to do, Balak, is to entice them to worship your gods. Entice them into your way of worship, away from their God, and this will weaken them. And so this is what they tried to do. They tried to entice the Israelites to worship false gods. They tried to entice them to sacrifice to their idols so that they would be drawn away from the truth and they would, be, they would collapse as a people. And so that's what he's talking about there. He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We already talked about them. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ear, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. To him who overcomes, I will give them the hidden manna. In other words, I will nourish your soul. It will, I will nourish your soul with the truth that comes from God. And it's a truth that many in the world either don't know or they've rejected. One of those truths you can say would be that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. That's a truth which either a lot of the world doesn't know or they reject. They reject because they're saying you're being too narrow-minded. There's many paths that lead to God. And there are, that's true. There's many paths that will lead to the throne room and the, foothold, the, the threshold of judgment. But only one path leads to salvation. Everyone will stand before God. That is true. One path leads to salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. That's an example. I will also give them a white stone with a new name on it. So one of the things about the Israelites, when they were coming out of Egypt, they had to redefine themselves. They thought of themselves as a slave people. Now they had to think of themselves as a free people. They thought of themselves as people that were hard and under the whip. Now they had to learn to become people that were under a law. And they had to be redefined. And in that same way, we are redefined by Christ. So we overcome, in this case, by refusing to eat those lies of the world, which sound like they're nourishing our soul, but in reality, they're leaving it empty and hopeless. And he goes on to say to another one in, in Revelation 2.26, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Now, this is another one of these verses where he makes reference to a person in the Old Testament. But what this is talking about here is that there's an overcoming that takes place, again, through the repentance of false teachings. You'll find that repentance is a big part of overcoming. Overcoming isn't assuming that you're always in the right and you just march out and you take on things around you. A lot of overcoming is overcoming yourself, 
overcoming what you've allowed to come into your life and influence your life. He says we overcome by repenting false teachings and the challenge, that challenges the power and authority of the gospel. And where does that come from? Well, the preceding verses say this. He says you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Who's Jezebel? Again, like Balaam, Jezebel is a villain from the Old Testament. So it's not like, it's probably unlikely that he's talking about a woman who's actually named Jezebel. But he, he's talking about her as a type. Because Jezebel in the Old Testament was a Phoenician princess who marries King Ahab. The Phoenicians are the people from which the Philistines came. For example, Goliath was a Phoenician. He was a Philistine. And Ahab was this king of Israel, and he was a weak-willed king. And what happened is Jezebel came into his life, and when you read the story, she bent his weak will to do what she thought a king should do. An example was, uh, there's a story where, where King Ahab, he wants this piece of land, but it's given to another person because it's in this other person's tribe. It's not in his tribe. It's not Ahab's right to have. And he wants this land. And he kind of moans around wanting it. And Jezebel says, well, why don't you just take it? And he says, I can't take it because it's within the law of Moses. That this is the land that was given to his tribe, to his family. I can't just take it. And she says, you're a king. What kind of weak king are you if you can't just take a piece of land? Go take it. And kill him if you have to. And he does. His will is bent to her. And so he begins to walk away from the authority that he has as a king under God. And he begins to have, have his authority twisted by his wife, Jezebel. And so he's talking to this church here. He says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. In other words, here's a woman that is calling herself and this isn't about being a woman. You can, this could be a man who's a false prophet. But this is a false prophet. A prophet in this context is a person that speaks for God. Thus saith the Lord. And when they speak for God, it is as if God is speaking. There's a lot of authority behind that. Which is one reason why if a person was found to be a false prophet, they were to be put to death. Because you can imagine how a whole nation can go off course if they listen to someone whom they believe has the authority of God. And it happened all the time in the Old Testament to Israel. There were false prophets all the time. And they always took the people off course. He says, you have one of these in the church. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, the eating food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And then you come into the overcoming to him who overcomes and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. So in this way, the way that we overcome is by challenging and standing up to teachings which try to twist the authority and the power found in the Gospels. And this happens all the time. People try and twist the authority and the power found in the Gospels all the time. They try and say things like, well, one is universalism, which just says, well, Christ died for everybody. Whether you accept him as Lord or not, everybody's going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross. And that is twisting the power of the gospel. It's claiming there is a power there, but it's twisted. Because on top of that, then they'll say, and so it doesn't really matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus died for everybody. The grace of God flows into your life whether you want it or not. And people go, oh, well, great. Then I guess I do what I want, and I won't worry about when I die facing judgment from God because, hey, Jesus died for everybody. 
And I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to you know, acknowledge what he did. It's just there. That is proclaiming a certain amount of power, but it's twisted into the way that it loses all of its power. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Again, here overcoming is back into that place of being found in the book of life, but the context is a bit different. In this, the context of overcoming is being a people who walk the talk. What does that mean? Well, it means that we live what we say. We don't say one thing and live another way. Because this is the problem. These are the preceding verses leading into this one. Not all of them, because verse 4 just kind of repeats a bunch of what he says here. But he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. In other words, you look good. And people look at you and go, ah, this is, you guys look good. But you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of the Lord. Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I come to you. And it flows into this. He who overcomes will be like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. So the warning is to this particular group of people that you look good. You follow maybe a, a certain, you, maybe you, you, you follow a certain group of rituals. You follow a certain group of teachings that other people go, oh, that makes good sense. But you've walked away from what the Bible teaches. These are folks that are wrapped up in ritual, wrapped up in the presentation of who they are. But they're not following what they've been given by God. And as human beings, we have a tendency to do this. I am always amazed, and this isn't just something found within Catholicism, it's found within prosperity gospels, found all over the place. I am amazed at how much money is poured into these projects of vanity, be it an enormous cathedral, or be it a whole fleet of private jets. And you go into the, you go into the prosperity gospel in the U.S., there are these guys, they tell you, you know, you have to give in order to get from God. You have to give to me. And they live in the, and they say, God wants us to live like this. Is that how Jesus lived? I always want to say, what would Jesus think if he walked into some of these prosperity preachers' uh, compounds with their fleet of jets in a house that is like a couple of hectares big, just the house, when there's desperately poor people around the world. In fact, a lot of these guys go to poor countries. They go into, the, you know, many countries in Africa who are people are poor and they convince them, all you, do, all you need to do to get out of poverty is to give me some of your money. It's a seed of faith. And these guys claim Jesus' name. They look good. But they're dead. They're not preaching the gospel of Christ. They're preaching the gospel literally of health and wealth. Be rich, be healthy. And those who overcome that are people that look at the scriptures and say, no, we're to live as Christ is our model, not some other preacher, 
not some other religious leader. Christ is our model. And if he's our model, what is that model? Then he says, to him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. The idea of this is the idea of overcoming by being patient in times of the world kind of wearing you down. You know, there's something to be said about persecution that energizes the church. You know, the church is growing in places that's under persecution now. There's something about being persecuted that people almost feel like they have a fight to stand for. But what's harder than that act of persecution is the long waits of life. When you have to go through these long periods of life where you're wondering, where's God's answer? When is, this, when is he going to answer this prayer? And in this case, when is he going to come back? And he talks to this church. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world and test those who live on the earth. Then he tells them, so since you've been patient, I'm going to allow you to avoid this particular persecution. Then he has to assure them, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And you think about a pillar. You look at even just this picture. You know, what, is, what does it look like? It's, a pillar is kind of serene, but it's strong. And it bears a lot of weight, but it doesn't crumble. It stands. It's not very dynamic. A pillar doesn't jump around and move around. You might look at a pillar and go, it's kind of a boring part of the building. But it is the part that bears the weight. And it bears it quietly and patiently until the Lord that is going to fill that temple comes. You know, we talk a lot about the second coming of Christ, and people have been talking about it for years and years and years. And there are those that over the time, and even it's in the Gospels, they started to make fun of the Christians. Where is, he come? Where is Christ? Where is your God that you say is coming back? And, and Peter, the apostle, had to say, well, you know, to the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He had to take a different perspective, because even Peter probably went through a phase of wondering, when is he coming back? Because the initial expectation was it was going to be very soon. And this waiting, this patient waiting, it can wear you down. But blessed are those who overcome that. If we can be patient, we'll be like a pillar in the temple of God. Strong. Standing for what we need to stand for. Not crumbling under the weight of time and expectation. Then he says to uh, Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. This again comes back to the place of being deceived by comfort and wealth because the church he's referring to here is probably one of the famous ones, the church of Laodicea. And in this sense, we overcome by not becoming complacent or lukewarm in our faith. So he goes from the place where he talks about the people having patience but then he moves on to a group that they've gone beyond patient, they've gone into complacent. And there's a difference between being complacent and patient. You know, patient, you still have the expectations, but you're not letting it wear you down. Complacent is, I'm not even going to think about this anymore. 
And here are the verses that lead into it. He's talking to this church. He says, I know your deeds. And most of you probably heard this passage. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Earnest means be sincere. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He who overcomes will, will inherit. Uh, he, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I don't know about you, because we're an international church. People have grown up in all kinds of different backgrounds and economic situations. But from my background as an American, I think one of the biggest challenges to richer countries and churches and Christians in richer countries is feeling like we don't really need God. You know that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? I do not often pray that with a lot of angst in my soul about where is my daily bread coming from. I can, I can tell you, I have a whole refrigerator full of food. I've got lots of bread at home. I'm not that worried about it. It's easy to say, I really don't need God. One of the reasons why I think there's a lot of faith that comes from people that have often come from poorer backgrounds is because they understand they've needed God to fill their belly. They have had to pray the prayer, Lord God, somehow do the miracle of bringing food to our, our, our family because they don't have any. But it's easy to become complacent. And we say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. And the truth is, when we're in that place, we begin to lose sight of our need for God for our soul. That's why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. You know, blessed are those who understand that they have a need. Not that physical being physically poor is anything to aspire to any more than trying to be prosperity and rich. But he's saying you need to understand where you are. And this becomes a big issue, I think, for us in richer countries like Germany, where it's easy for us to say, what do I need God for? I've got security. I've got food. I've got everything I need. And the truth is, you don't realize, we don't realize that we're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We need God. And sometimes, when God withholds a blessing, which forces us then to our knees, it's actually a blessing that he withholds the blessing because we realize our need for God. And you've experienced this. Sometimes you go along in life and things be going fine, then all of a sudden, out of the blue, something changes you weren't expecting. Sometimes it's a health issue. Sometimes you've lost your job. And what does that do? What does that do to you? 
For many of you, if you're a believer, it pushes you more toward God. Right? Is that a blessing when you lose some of that and you have to be pushed toward God? Our flesh would go, that's no blessing. In fact, our flesh would get mad with God. Where were you? Why is this happening to me? But we don't realize we're praying a lot more now. We're leaning on God a lot more now. Sometimes when God withholds his blessing, it's the blessing. Especially for those of us who grew up wealthy or in wealthy countries. And then the final promise is this. This is found all the way. You can jump from chapters 2 and 3 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And he says this. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son. And what he's talking about, the context here is, of course, in the recreation of God, in the presence of God, the new heaven, the new earth, those who overcome will be inheritors of all of this. And he says that I will be his God and he will be my son. And it's not saying that only men inherit this. This is one reason why it's important in the scripture. The apostle Paul, who is often uh, accused of being just, you know, a misogynistic, narrow-minded guy, which if you actually read what he writes, he's not. He very famously said more than once, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. In Christ, we are one. And what he means by that isn't that we don't have gender. He's not saying that we don't come from different economic backgrounds. Paul's not saying we all come from the same cultures. But what he's saying is that in Christ, we have the status of inheritors. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You have the status of an inheritor in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. You have the status of an inheritor in Christ. It doesn't matter if you came from the slave class or the ruling class. You have the status of an inheritor in Christ. And in the time of Christ, in the time of this was written, only sons inherited. It's just the way it was. It's not saying this is, a, this is a morally neutral statement. Only sons inherited. Not saying that's good, not saying that's bad. It's just the way it is, the way it was. So he wants to make it clear. That's why the Apostle Paul points out Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. In Christ, those who overcome are the inheritors. And we all have equal status with the firstborn son who went ahead of us who is the victor over sin and death, who makes it possible for us to enter into this place, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. So this is what it means to overcome. It's not just shaking your fist at the world. In fact, most of the time, if you look at this, the, person that has to, the thing that needs to be mostly overcome is ourselves. And the things that we have allowed to influence our life and draw us away from the truth of Christ. And may it be that we can deal with this, be honest before God with the things that we need to deal with. We come from different backgrounds at IBCV, so there's, there's different, different ways that this will apply to your life. But set it before God and ask him, Lord, where am I in this? I mean, I know where I am and part of it. I know I come from that rich background. Not that my family was rich, but just the fact I'm a white American male. I don't mean that to be a racist statement. I don't mean that to be some kind of, you know, nationalistic statement. But I tell you what, being a white American male holds us a lot of privilege in the, in the world. I'm an Auslander here. But I'm a welcomed Auslander. Why? Because I'm an American male. 
Some of you come from rich backgrounds. Some of you have come from poor backgrounds. Some of you have come from backgrounds where you've been taught things that are said to be holy, but then you look at the Bible and they don't go together. There's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, some of you have been taught differently. That there's lots of mediators between God and man. Is that true? It's not biblical. Some of you have been taught, well, we keep... In order to express our faith, we come to certain feast days. We come on certain holidays. That's what God wants. Is that what the Bible says God wants? Just in case you're wondering, no. He wants your life, the entirety of your life. Not just a few days out of the week. Not just a few weekends out of the year. So look at these places. If you want to be an overcomer, if you want to be one of these inheritors... Pray. Ask God, what are these places? Where do I need to overcome? You can find all of this in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. It's in the context of talking to some churches. But you can read through those and see where do I fit in there? How do I overcome? So that I can be a victor in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and we thank you for the ways that you have made it possible for us to live as people who overcome. And Lord, forgive us, because sometimes we spend a lot of energy trying to overcome things that really aren't all that important to you. We think they are. You know, we often spend a lot of energy in political arguments. We spend a lot of energy in, in arguments over theology. We spend a lot of arguments trying to overcome things that really aren't the things that are important to you. Help us to be focused on you, the truth of your word, living it faithfully, living it within your character, not just following you know, what we think you want us to do, but to do it in the way that you would want us to do it. And help us to be willing to repent for those things that have influenced us away from the truth that is found in you. So that as individuals, we can be people who overcome. And as a church, we will be a people who overcome. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.